Why is the Atlantic promoting freer housing markets? Trust me, it's a setup. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. So this is part two. Part one was about the homelessness initiative from the White House. And this is about a housing initiative that came down earlier in the year, but I still think they're hand in hand. They have a lot of overlap. And I'm pretty sure there's an agenda at work because, as luck would have it, the Atlantic, which I consider to be hote propaganda, it came out with an article that I know was widely disseminated because when I last time I talked to Anthony Raimondo, which is um, a show you can find in the Deep Dives with Monica Perez feed from December, and this part one you can find on the January 6th feed um, show episode, January 6th, 2023, of Deep Dives with Monica Perez is part one of this. But the Anthony Raimondo thing, Raimondo thing, he was pointing out that The Atlantic had this article, he just couldn't get his mind around it. They were saying how uh, bad, you know, over overly restrictive zoning regulations were at the heart of the housing crisis, and, you know, that ties into homelessness. And I read the same article, and I had already decided to do a deep dive on it because it was, you know, it did give me a double take, and I realized that, you know, the zoning changes are the agenda. And the real problem with the housing and homelessness is not the zoning. Uh, and so I'll tell you about that. So the our diving board is that article from The Atlantic. It's uh, the the headline was the obvious answer to homelessness. The obvious answer to homelessness. Anyone who starts with that, I don't like it. Anyway, so first, like, let's establish if there really is actually a housing crisis. There's definitely a disconnect between supply and demand at the moment. And I think it's because right at the same time, just last week or this week, the Wall Street Journal had an article about this glut of apartments, like nice apartments, maybe a million too many units. There's this overabundance over because of you know too much building, too much stuff coming online over the past two years. And if you look back in the housing plan from May that came out of the White House, he they say we are going to set up incentives to like warp speed getting apartments online by the end of 2022. And they did. And it and they may have, I don't know. I mean, I could I have to tell you, I had this is a two-parter because I just could not stop like digging and digging and digging. Eventually I just gave myself a moratorium on clicking through. <laughs> it was just like, I want to click through, I'm not gonna click through because I would click through and then click through that I'd like be in a whole nother topic. So I did not, I, I did not prove my theory that they diverted building resources from what the market was demanding to what the government was promoting. I think that's not a crazy leap. I'm not sure I have to actually go and document that. I think that's just a, like an economic tautology or something. Okay, so, th so there are too many like kind of higher-end apartments, but not enough lower-end apartments. Now, I, I can think of probably, I could probably think of five ways to fix that right now. So you got too many apartments, you're an investor, you're you know a builder, you've got a mortgage, maybe it was like a construction loan, you don't have to start paying it for a while. You don't want to lower the rent because you don't want, well, it, it, lowering the rent would be fine. You don't want to lower your standards to get like, you know, un, un, homeless people in your, in your high-end apartments, right? 
So what you might do is go to like the yuppie crowd. You know, that's what they used to call them, young, upwardly mobile professionals, whatever. So you get people, maybe it's a reach for them to pay your rent, but they have good credit. They have a good job. They live nearby. Um, they want the apartment, but they really cannot pay your high rent, but they'd be, they would keep it nice. You can definitely check that. You can talk to landlords and whatever. So give the, those people who pass your credit check the first three months free. I mean, that's what happens when there's too many apartments. You give them the first three months free. Then you have a tenant, give them a long lease, you know, whatever. And then you can start paying your loan back. And that guy moves out of an apartment that was cheaper. And then there's vacancies there. And then they do the same thing, you know, or they just lower the rents. And then eventually... I mean, it takes a little time, but not as much time as it's going to take for them to build 2 million affordable housing apartments. The market price is clear. So I, like I said in the previous episode, it's really like a question of 500,000. If you're really talking about homelessness as the problem, which they're, you know, that's what they're saying, is they, which is a problem I believe they, their policy has created intentionally. Um, and I only just scratched the surface on the policies that might have led to homelessness in the last episode. But that was another thing. I just had to like click through moratorium. I just could not continue down that path. It's like a very interesting, actually, I wouldn't mind getting into it more, but, um, okay. So, so let's say there's 500,000 homeless people on any given day, which means that there's a 500,000 bed problem. So a problem that can be solved with 500,000 beds. And there's a million of these extra apartments. You could just, you know, that that if that if if housing is the problem, it will right itself. Now, if it's crime and mental illness and drug addiction and stuff that makes these people unhousable, then it's not really a housing problem. It's a clientele issue. <laughs> you know, it's that these people cannot cannot be trusted to live in a nice place. And if you put them in a nice place, they will not keep it nice. You know, like that's. You know, that, that may be the heart of the problem. And I have sympathy for that. But my, my gut is that the homeless problem create is, was created to justify a housing agenda. So I'm just debunking the homelessness element here. And I don't even think there's a housing problem, really. Like, there are enough houses, you know, there are enough beds. How you break it up, like, that's up to you. And to me, this kind of disconnects where you have like too many high-end apartments and not enough low-end apartments, or you have a, you have, like we have a labor surplus and a labor shortage at the same time. I just heard on the news today, there are 10 million job openings and 6 million people looking for work. And there's always like what's called like the transitional unemployment. I forget what it's called. Like there's always going to be like people between jobs. So you can't have zero unemployment. It's not even a real goal. Just like zero homelessness, like shouldn't even be a real goal. I want the option to sleep at my mother's house. I might even do that this summer, actually. I'm going to go stay at my nephew's house at the beach because my lease is up and I don't want to get a new place if it's just the summer. It's hot here. I don't want to be here. I want to be there with my family. Like I would be technically homeless. My entire family will be homeless this summer, <laughs> you know, but it's going to be awesome. So I'm not making fun of homeless people. I'm just saying the way they define it, you don't want zero, you know, you don't want zero homelessness. You want zero, like by the way they define it, you don't want zero unemployment. But 
a lot of that, when they try to justify like having skilled labor visas to get immigrant labor, like from India and stuff, they are saying that we have a lot of college graduates. We have unemployment. We have unemployed people, but they're not software engineers. And that's what we need. And for me, that is 100% a function of indiscriminate college subsidies from government policy. That no college, no bank, no employer, nobody is giving an 18-year-old without resources the resources to get an education that will not allow them to repay, earn out that money. It's not going to happen. And I remember when I was growing up, it didn't happen. I've talked about this before. My sister was a secretary at a pharmaceutical company, and they put her to school at night, and she became a pharmaceutical chemist. took her forever, and it sucked for her, but she did it, and they paid for it, and she didn't have school loans as long as she stayed. It's kind of like the Army. As long as you stay, or like, you know, West Point, as long as you stay, they don't make you pay it back, and that's the way it would be. But they didn't pay her to become an art history major, (laughs) you know? nobody's going to do that. Like you do actually some, some universities do that. There's probably five art history PhDs at Harvard or 50. I don't know. And they actually tuitions low or zero for them. They, they do, they teach, they teach their TAs, whatever. That's how they earn it out. Something like that. I don't know. But like, but there are also people who are art history majors who aren't getting free tuition or it's very hard to get into one of those programs because you just don't need that many art history. You don't, you don't need to subsidize art history the same as you would to try to get people to become software engineers. So when you have like a systemic breakdown in the market clearing that just lasts and lasts, it's I always look at policy failure and I always find it. And in every case so far that I've looked at it, liberty would be the answer. (laughs) So in this case, too, liberty would be the answer. Stop trying to manipulate these markets, like ease up. But what they're talking about is easing up on zoning, on zoning regulations. So I actually think that's the wrong focus. So I want to get to what their recommendations are, but I did want to hit just on the idea of affordable housing. Like, what does affordable housing mean? It means that the workers can afford the housing to live where the jobs are. I think. I'm just going to say that. Let's just say that. Because the biggest problem is that it used to be if there was a booming city, a rich city, People would migrate there, service workers, to work there because that's where the jobs were. And they'd be able to maybe live in an SRO, live in a flop house, live wherever. And now some cities like New York and San Francisco are so expensive that the service workers just can't live there. And there's a, a problem. There's a shortage of service workers. And I actually knew someone who had a nice restaurant and he could not get the staff too much turnover, closed down the restaurant, opened a burrito, like a lunch counter that was burritos, and he's just banking money. And, and that actually probably suits like the single software guys who can live there. And they don't need to go out to dinner every night. And they're not willing to pay how much it would really cost to employ, you know, a $25 an hour dishwasher, you know, just anyone who could live within an hour and a half of that place. 
And that the market would correct that as well. The market did correct it. The restaurant closed down and a burrito place opened up. And the market corrected it. And if if people don't, if those cities don't have enough services, then they're going to have to start paying for them. But more likely, like what did happen in New York when I lived there, the headquarters of these big companies are going to move into the suburbs. They're going to move to Connecticut. They're going to move wherever. They're going to like Apple. Like they're going to move away. And yes, you're going to have some sprawl, but it solves the problem. There's plenty of room you know, with sprawl just means contiguous like suburbs. And so what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with sprawl? <laughs> you know, it sucks if there's traffic and everything, but you don't necessarily need the traffic, but these are things that can happen organically. Now I'm just giving you ideas of how the market would solve a problem and the market would solve the problem in the best way, I think. And the, the, what they're going to do though, what they're doing is they're taking these ideas that I'm coming up with about options that the that might emerge organically, who knows which one would take hold and which one wouldn't, they have an agenda and they want to serve that agenda. And they're going to take some of these ideas and they're going to mold them, shape them, control them, pay for them, create dependence on them, pull out the rug on them, like whatever. They are going to use these ideas and force them. So I have this, I noticed this thing, like with government, everything is either banned prohibited or mandated. <laughs> so you're not allowed to have SROs, single resident occupancy housing, or you are required to, or the government will pay for tiny homes and you can't zone away from it. You know, like they, they, they are going to disrupt that market mechanism, even if some of my ideas are good ideas. Because what I'm saying is, the market with every choice you make, it's a Hayek's theory of information with, or eye pencil, read eye pencil. With every choice you make, you're putting information into the pricing mechanism and you're allocating resources where they will garner the most return. And that is the most efficient allocation. And it, it, it maximizes the utility and not in a bad way. Like it's not, it's not demonic. It maximizes the happiness that people get out of the dollars they spend. It meets their needs, and it happens a lot faster than this with less systemic risk of total failure for having put all the eggs in one basket. And I see those things as real risks here. So what they, so what the administration came up with in May is what I think the whole purpose of the homelessness narrative anyway, actions to ease the burden of housing costs. And if you think for one second this thing was crafted in good faith, I can read the first sentence to you, which belies how dishonest this entire thing is. The first sentence is, housing is one of the largest costs for Americans, and the shortage of housing in this country is one of the largest drivers of inflation. What is wrong with that? I'm not saying that there isn't a shortage of housing. I want to get to that. And I'm not, I, I'm not saying that that is not contributing to the cost of living. But I will tell you that it is, it is an absolute economic truth proven many times that when the government starts subsidizing things, it creates hyperinflation in that sector. Take education. Higher education, I mean, 
I'm sending my kids to college. I know, like, I'm... I live in such an alternative universe that I'm going to get hate mail for that. But, um, and I agree with it. I'm like, yes, you're right. It's like, I, I'm not a dictator. But uh, the cost is, it's insane. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. And way, way higher than it was when I went to school. And then uh, the other thing is healthcare. You know, you compare healthcare like government subsidized healthcare with like cosmetic surgery, that's a very famous comparison. And you can just see that it's, it's the prices should get go down, not up. And so this gal I was talking about um, who I fear that she'll be homeless, like the reason that she's in crisis right now is that her husband died after a precipitous decline from a really aggressive uh, cancer that emerged quickly and uh, very sad. And um, she told me, it's very sad. It's just, this just happened. But she told me that her, her costs, the bill, like she had some kind of insurance, whatever. I don't know what it is to her. But the bill was, I can't remember the exact number, it's well over a million dollars. And his initial diagnosis was stage four. So he died... You know, he was diagnosed on Father's Day, and he died before Christmas. And, I mean, it's that kind of a cost for someone with a terminal illness, like, that just would not happen in a, in a strictly free market. Like, and it, I consider it really to be unconscionable that they put him through that and that them, and then the, you know, that's why this stuff bankrupts people. But, uh I know it's a little bit, gosh, it's too sad. I'm sorry. I shouldn't, it's too soon. It's too soon. I shouldn't talk about that. Uh, Cause now it made me lose my train of thought, but I, I didn't really, I just, I know that it causes hyperinflation in these um, sectors that are subsidized like that. So there's like no question in my mind, it's going to screw up housing, at least in that tier. But like I explained earlier, like if you've got some, upwardly mobile person taking a glut of housing on the top, like that pricing will trickle down. Same thing if, if the government causes a massive increase in rents. So that's what happens. Like the government gives you, but this is what happened with the welfare hotels in New York. Like they were more expensive than nice hotels, but a nice hotel or an apartment, the government doesn't just write the check to the landlord. They do it with the welfare hotels and the landlords like charge exactly what the government's going to pay. And then they cut the cost because the people don't even see the money going to the owner. They don't know what they're entitled to. And the way the owner can maximize profits is by cutting the services that they get. Like, it's really not good. And when you do that, people are going to move into that sector, you know, somewhat. And then that, you know, but because the government doesn't care about the prices, it won't make the prices go down in that sector. But it might, you know, increase the demand for social services or whatever, because those houses are free. Like there's a lot of, you know, the, you cannot, you cannot raise the prices in one sector and expect it not to divert resources to that sector, which will raise prices in other sectors. So that's just not good. And this, uh, actions to ease the burden of housing costs has some specifics. And the very first one, I mean, the specifics I, I noticed was that it encourages certain types of building 
And that uh, is definitely ripe for corruption. Like it's going to give contracts. It's going to get um, corrupted. So even if they want, even if they want to do a good job, this kind of thing is just inevitable to corrupt. They will focus on zoning. And I'm going to give you the punchline on this. It's not zoning that's the problem. It's regulations. That's why the Atlantic wants us to look at zoning. Zoning is what they want to change, but it's the regulations that are the problem. And then they want to increase or maximize government and nonprofit ownership, which, again, you know, rather than have big companies and institutions own all these housing, which it's too late for that anyway. <laughs> like We've already seen that coming. So it's too late for that. And if this drives up the cost of housing in this sector and that increased cost trickles up, those institutional guys are going to make a windfall anyway. It's not going to be this money, but it'll be affected by this money. Anyway, so at least, you know, in the short term. So the first thing is they are going to reward jurisdictions that have reformed zoning and land use policies with higher scores in certain federal grants processes. So if you change your land use policies and your zoning, you will get higher on the list for a federal grant. And the infrastructure law that was passed recently is going to reward higher density zoning and Main Street revitalization, which is a big Agenda 21 thing because it, it really controls traffic flow and it kind of bre- it can break up the town if they put a median like in Main Street. It separates the two parts of that and it keeps like services, fire and stuff from crossing over to the other side. And that folds into what Dean tweeted at me about the 15-minute city. They want everyone to just be within 15-minute walk of every single thing they need, which, of course, will cut us off, especially if they actually do put medians in. It will cut you off from, like, the outside world, basically. Like, you will, like, have your Zoom world, and you'll have this little enclave, and you won't won't have contact beyond that, slowing down information, slowing down transportation. And those are forms of communication. And that's part of the control, the mind control, the surveillance, the censorship. But it's the zoning that really bothers me because I I feel like I was the first person to really, I shouldn't say the first person, that's ridiculous. But as a libertarian on the radio, one of the things that people would call like conservatives who weren't fully libertarian, they'd be like, you know, but libertarians don't like zoning. And I really, I want my neighborhood to stay the way it is. And I would say, look, like the reason you need zoning is because the government comes in and makes so many policies that subsidize rapid growth, like from building roads, like building roads to your town is going to allow your town to, you know, service other communities, either with retail or with apartments or whatever. Like, so it will subsidize the developer's cost who might otherwise have to build that road himself. And you would not have those things if the government didn't subsidize that. They depress interest rates. (coughs) They intentionally depress interest rates. They control them. Right now they're raising them, but generally they depress them in my lifetime. And that encourages building. For the longest time, like now, I think they changed it somewhat, but basically the number one tax deduction was a mortgage. And there was also lots of tax incentives for builders. Sometimes builders, I remember when I looked into the Brave Stadium in Cobb, 
someone said, look, it looks like they're paying a fair deal, but I bet you anything, they don't have to pay taxes like everybody else, property taxes or retail, whatever it is, they're getting some kind of tax break and that's going to make all the difference. And I believe that's true. So if the government were not involved in promoting growth all the time, even wars for oil depress the the price of gasoline, or at least they used to. And that, that promotes building. If it costs twice as much to truck stuff around, you wouldn't truck so much stuff around. Like, I'm just saying, there's a lot, a lot of things that promote this building that otherwise you would not have. You would have, I mean, some of these buildings, buildings that were built 100 years ago or 150 years ago made of brick. Like, if you go to England and Italy and stuff, these buildings are hundreds of years old. You don't need to scrape stuff. Now, maybe they are subject to zoning, but like the fact is tearing stuff down is subsidized and rapid development is subsidized. So the zoning regulations in my mind is, is, a, is something that masks the impact of those other government policies. So I'm not a fan of zoning. However, we do have those other government policies. So if you don't want them to create horrible problems in your neighborhood, or like Sir Tim sent me something about this Japanese billionaire who went to, I think, Honolulu and just bought up a bunch of property and made it awful. He just made it awful. And I think they did like mess with his immigration status or something because it was just unbearable to the local community. But, you know, that's that's a local community having control over people who don't, you know, not being super welcome to. And my guess is that guy had plenty of passes from the government because he's a billionaire. He's probably buying off politicians left and right. But if people want to control like the landscape of their beautiful local community and somebody who doesn't love them and isn't from there comes in and messes it up, I mean, social pressure might be enough, you know? And you could probably go back and say he's any, any irrational jerk like that who's a billionaire is probably government subsidized anyway. <laughs> All right. So, but it's not, see, it's not the zoning though that's the problem because we've had zoning for a long time. And I was reading an article, I forget which it's from. It might've been like from Bloomberg, but it's that, oh, it was the Wall Street Journal, that the real problem is regulatory barriers. So let me read a few passages from this. In recent years, new home prices generally have been at least a third higher than resale prices. I don't actually remember what year this is from. I don't think it's right now, but it's about this phenomenon. In recent years, new home prices generally have been at least a third higher than resale prices. This summer, the Wall Street Journal cited several recent studies that have documented how increased regulatory and permitting costs have driven those prices up. The rules cover everything from impact fees and stormwater runoff to species surveys and architectural mandates. So I, the architectural mandates, I guess, are zoning laws, but this stuff, impact, stormwater, species, that's all environmental stuff. And that comes, that's not your locals. Like if your locals care about architecture, I get that. And I, I'm not saying, you know, I wouldn't prefer to live in a libertarian world, but I would not begrudge local people in a place I don't live if they had unanimous consent on their street <laughs> to agree. I mean, I'm not going to object to that. But this other stuff comes from on high. That's what that ICLE is, that International Council 
for local environmental initiatives. It's like in the name, it's in the name that that's what they're doing. So it's these on high things that are screwing up, uh, these regulatory things, not the the zoning. Um, it says even Bill, I, I don't think this, just to be clear, I don't think this was from the Wall Street Journal, but they're citing the Wall Street Journal. It might've been Bloomberg or Cato. It's in the show notes. Even building permits matter. An analysis by the real estate tracking firm Trulia recently showed that housing prices correlate highly with the length of time it takes to get a permit. The longer the wait, the higher the price. Planners claim the price of real estate and market swings matter a whole lot more, but it's striking to note two figures. 33.8%, which is the growth in new home prices from 2011 to 2016, and 29.8%, which is the growth in the regulatory costs of new home construction during the same period. So it's almost one-to-one. I mean, obviously, it's not 100% the cost of the regulatory stuff, but it can be the difference maker in decisions on when, where, how to build, how much to build, how quickly stuff can come on the market, and people can go bankrupt from stuff like that. Reason Magazine had a great analogy. They called it, they talked about, you know how I've talked about iatrogenic illness, like when you're sick because of the medicine, the housing price, the housing problem is an iatrogenic problem. It's a problem caused by housing policy. I think that's very clever. So there's all of this, I think, kind of plugs into the Agenda 21 phenomenon, the habitat stuff, the UN Habitat 1, 2, and 3, the World Economic Forum. You will, you know, it's 2030. I have no privacy. I own nothing and I'm happy. Like that is their agenda. It is, they want to shape the future of real estate. They actually have that in World Economic Forum, like shaping the future of real estate. Um, urban environments, there's a, this is also in the show notes, Ickley has an urban environments thing. I would like to read it to you. I think I might have to do a whole another show just on that stuff. But what they want is to control you. They want to surveil you. They want um, to collect information on you. They want you not to have the information. They want you not to communicate with each other. It's really, it's really insidious. And I, I think I am going to break now. I'm going to my mom's at 430 in the morning. So I have to stop. I have to pack, I have to do, have like my last dinner with my family here. I probably might be at her place for a while. And, um, but from there, I probably can do one more episode of this because Rosa Quare, Quare, it's hard to get her name exactly right. K-O-I-R-E. God rest her soul. I really, the more I look into what she did, how ahead of it she was, the sacrifices she made, um, the more I respect her, and she died of one of those rapid, like, you know, a month from diagnosis to death cancers, which is just so horrible. It's just really upsetting me. I actually put, I just talked to a guy, Dr. Paul Cottrell, which will be in the feed next week, about the connection between COVID and cancer and whether it's the the actual natural, natural, ha, ha, ha. Spike protein, no matter where you get it, can be really bad. So, but, uh, you know, I, I actually suspect foul play from her, although I haven't heard anything to 
um, support that or anything, but if anybody sh- they would want to get rid of right now as they bring these plans to the fore, it would be her. Because she called us out. She was an urban, she was a forensic uh, commercial real estate appraiser for eminent domain cases. And her own land was hit by some eminent domain thing or redevelopment project, and she fought it, and it just opened up to her this whole sustainability agenda and what it meant for us, for our persons, for how we live, where we live. It's really amazing. And she talked a lot about the the methods they use to force this stuff down on the local level to disempower you while paying lip service to empowerment. And I don't want to give it short shrift. So I am going to make the unprecedented move of promising you a part three. I hope that's okay. I hope you don't mind. And with that, I will tell you that uh, I don't know when I will be back. I think I'm going to try to do that part three from my mom's house. Maybe we can get her in the background to give a little, that crap in you and I knew from the beginning it was no good. So we'll see. We'll see if we can get my mom to chime in. Only if she does not see the mic will she will she uh, be like my peanut gallery. So maybe I can... Maybe I can be incognito. The hidden Fran will be there. She'll help me. All right. Well, I am Monica Perez. And if you don't know that, you probably don't know my mom, know the hidden Fran, know any of this stuff. I've got a lot of new listeners recently. Um, I think because I was on Tinfoil Hats with Sam Tripoli, that was super fun. He's so great and generous that I actually let me put on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. So you can listen to it there in my feed. But if you don't know me, I am Monica Perez. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with other people who don't know me. Share it with social media. Anybody you think will enjoy it. And if you want to talk to me, I I try to answer anybody who tweets at me basically every single night at Monica Perez Show.